Mr. Heck. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, eight billion people. And if you're gonna figure out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and fighting our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. Director Miller, I'd like to go to the motives behind the Trump campaign, encouragement and acceptance of help during the election. Obviously, a clear motivation was to help them in a, what would turn out to be a very close election. But... There was another key motivation, and that was, frankly, the desire to make money. I always try to remember what my dad, who never had the opportunity to go beyond the eighth grade, taught me, which is that I should never, ever underestimate the capacity of some people to cut corners and even more in order to worship and chase the almighty buck. And this is important because I think it, in fact, does go to the heart of why the Trump campaign was so unrelentingly intent on developing relationships with the Kremlin. So let's quickly revisit one financial scheme we just discussed, which was the uh, Trump Tower in Moscow. We indicated earlier that it was a lucrative deal. Trump, in fact, stood in his company to earn many millions of dollars on that deal, did they not, sir? Oh. And Cohen, Mr. Cohen, his attorney, testified before this committee that uh, President Trump believed the deal required Kremlin approval. Is that consistent with what he told you? I, I'm not certain whether it's uh, Mr. Trump himself or others associated with that enterprise that had discussed the necessity of having the input from the state, meaning the Russian uh, government, isn't, in order to, for it to go forward successfully. Isn't it also true that Donald Trump viewed his presidential campaign, as he told top uh, campaign aides, that the campaign was an infomercial for uh, for uh, the Trump Organization and his properties? I'm not familiar with that. And let's turn to Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort. Did, in fact, your investigation find any evidence that Manafort intended to use his position as Trump's campaign chair for his own personal
personal financial benefit. Well, I, I would say there was some indication of that, but I won't go further. I think you'll find it on page 135 of Volume 1. During the transition, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, met with Sergei Gorkov, the head of a Russian-owned bank that was under, is under U.S. sanctions. And according to the head of the bank, he met with Kushner in his capacity as CEO of Kushner Companies to discuss business opportunities. Is that correct, sir? I'm not uh, certain. Uh, it was I'm not certain about that. Let me just put it that way. It was asserted thusly in your report, Volume 1, 160, pages 161 and 162. Your report notes that at the time, Kushner companies were trying to renegotiate a billion, with a B, a billion dollar lease of their flagship building at 666 Fifth Avenue, correct? I'm not familiar with those uh, financial arrangements. Also on page 162, where Kushner companies, it was asserted, had debt obligations coming due on the company. Eric Prince, a supporter close to Trump. A supporter. Campaign and administrative. I just, a supporter, I was. Uh, yes. He met in the Seychelles during the transition with Kirill Dmitriev, who was the head of a sanctioned Russian government investment arm, which had close ties to Vladimir Putin. Correct, sir? Yes. Your investigation determined that Mr. Prince had not known nor conducted business with Dmitriev before Trump won the election. Correct? Well, I uh, defer to uh, the report on that. Yet it does. And yet Prince, who had connections to top administration, Trump administration officials, met with Dmitriev during the transition period to discuss business opportunities, among other things. But it wasn't just Trump and his associates who were trying to make money off this deal, nor hide it, nor lie about it. Russia was too. That was the whole point, to gain relief from sanctions which would uh, hugely benefit their incredibly wealthy oligarchs. For example, sanctions relief was discussed at that June 9th meeting in the Trump Tower, was it not, sir? Yes, but so, it was not a main subject for discussion. Trump administration national security advisor designate Michael Flynn also discussed sanctions in a secret conversation with the Russian ambassador, did he not? Correct. So to summarize, Donald Trump, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, Eric Prince, and others in the Trump orbit all tried to use their connections with the Trump organization to profit from Russia, which was openly seeking relief from sanctions. Is that cr true, sir? I'm not, I'm not certain I can adopt uh, uh, what you well, want. I will, and I'd further assert that was not only dangerous, it was un-American. Greed corrupts. Greed corrupts, and it is a terrible foundation for developing American foreign policy. Mr. Ratcliffe. Director Mueller, uh, given your uh, constraints on what you're able or allowed to answer with respect to counterintelligence matters or other matters that are currently open and under investigation, you're not going to be able uh, to answer my remaining questions. So I thank you for your courtesies in the answers that you have given to my prior questions. And I do thank you for your extraordinary career 
and record of service and yield the balance of my time to the ranking member. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ratcliffe and Mr. Muller. Let me associate my words uh, with Mr. Ratcliffe. Um, got a few more questions. I want to clean up a little bit about the Eric Prince uh, Seychelles meeting. So Eric Prince testified before this committee uh, that he was surveilled by the U.S. government and the information from the surveillance was leaked to the press. Did you investigate whether Prince was surveilled and whether classified information on him was illegally leaked to the media? I, I, did you say did you or will you? Or, well, well, I know you can't. I, I know you're not so going to. I can't I know, I know you're not going to join back up in the ranks, but, um, but did you refer, were you aware that you know, Prince has made these allegations that he was surveilled? He's concerned that there were leaks about this surveillance. Um, did you make any referrals about these no, leaks? I, I can't get, I get in discussion on it. Okay. Uh, also want to, General Flynn, I know you came after the leak of his phone call with the Russian ambassador. Um, your time at, at FBI, uh, it would be a major scandal, wouldn't it, for the leak of the national security advisor and anyone uh, I can't, I can't adopt that hypothesis. Um, did your report name any people who were acting as U.S. government informants or sources without disclosing that fact? I can't answer that. Okay. On uh, volume one, page 133 of your report, you state that Konstantin Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. His name came up quite often today, but your report omits to mention that uh, Kalemnik has long-term relationships with U.S. government officials, including our own State Department. I can't be, uh, uh, I can't get into that. I know it's not in the report, uh, but, um, you know, if Kalemnik is being used in the report to say that he was possibly some type of Russian, Russian agent, and I think it is important for this committee to know if Kalimnik has ties to our own State Department, which it appears that he, that he does. Uh, uh, again, uh, it's the same territory that uh, I'm loath to get into. Okay. Um, you were asked this earlier about uh, Trump attorney John Dowd, that pieces of his phone call uh, were omitted from the report. It was ex what Mr. Dowd calls exculpatory evidence. Um, are you concerned I, about I'm not, I'm not certain I would agree with that characterization. Okay. I think I said that before. Yes. Um, an American citizen from the Republic of Georgia, who your report misidentifies as a Russian, claims that that your report omitted parts of a text message he had with Michael Cohen about stopping the flow of compromising tapes of Donald Trump. In the omitted portions, he says he did not know what the tapes actually showed. Was that portion of the exchange left out of the report for a reason? No, we got an awful lot into the report, but we did not get every uh, intersection or uh, conversation and the like. So I am not familiar with that particular uh, episode you're talking about. Thank you, Mr. Muller. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Mr. Welch. Uh, Director Mueller, uh, did you find there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia? Well, uh, we don't use the word co collusion. Uh, the word we usually use is uh, the, uh, well, not, co not collusion, um, but one of the uh, other uh, terms that, uh, uh, that fills in when collusion is not, uh, not used. In any event, the, uh, we decided not to use the word collusion in as much as it has no relevance to the criminal uh, law arena. The term is conspiracy that you prefer to use? That's a conspiracy, exactly right. You help me, I'll help you. Thank you. It's an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And in fact, you had to then make a charging decision after your uh, uh, investigation, uh, where unless there was enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you wouldn't make a charge, correct? Generally, that's the case. But making that decision does not mean your investigation failed to turn up evidence of conspiracy. Absolutely correct. And in fact, I'll go through some of the significant findings that your exhaustive investigation made. Uh, you found, as I understand it, that uh, from May 2016 until the end of the campaign, uh, campaign chairman Mr. Manafort gave private polling information to Russian agents, correct? Correct. Uh, well, and can you speak in the microphone? Yep, yeah, I will. And your, yeah, thank you. And your investigation found that in June 2016, uh, Donald Trump Jr. made an arrangement to meet at Trump Tower along with Jared Kushner and others, uh, expecting to receive dirt on the Hillary Clinton campaign, correct? Correct. Uh, and you found in your investigation that in July 27th, uh, candidate Trump called uh, on Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's email, something that for the first time they did about five hours later, correct? That's correct. And you also found that on August 2nd, Mr. Manafort uh, met with a person tied to Russian intelligence, Mr. Kalimnik, and gave him internal campaign strategy, aware that Russia was intending to do a misinformation social media campaign, correct? I'm not certain of the tie there. But the uh, fact of that meeting, you agree with? The fact of the meeting took place is accurate. In uh, your investigation, as I understand it, also found that in late summer of 2016, the Trump campaign, in fact, devised its strategy and messaging around WikiLeaks releases of materials that were stolen uh, from the Democratic National Committee, correct? Is that from the report? Yes. I it's according yes. to Mr. Gates. Yes. Yes, thank you. And you also uh, talked earlier about the finding in your investigation that in September and October of 2016, Donald Trump Jr. had email communications with WikiLeaks now indicted about releasing information damaging to the Clinton campaign, correct? True. So, True. So I, I understand you made a decision, prosecutorial decision, that this would not rise to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But I ask if you share my concern. And my concern is, have we established a new normal from this past campaign that is going to apply to future campaigns so that if any one of us running for the U.S. House, any candidate for the U.S. Senate, any candidate for the presidency of the United States, aware that a hostile foreign power is trying to influence an election, 
has no duty to report that to the FBI or other authorities. Well, I hope. Go ahead. Well, I hope this is not the, nor the uh, new normal, but I fear it is. And would, in fact, have the ability, uh, without fear of legal repercussion, to meet with agents of that foreign entity hostile to the American election? I'm sorry, what is the question? Is that an apprehension that you share with me? Yes. And that there would be no repercussions whatsoever to Russia if they did this again, and as you've stated earlier, as we sit here, they're doing it now. Is that correct? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, do you have any advice to this Congress as together what we should do to protect our electoral system and accept responsibility on our part to report to you or your successor when we're aware of hostile foreign engagement in our elections? Uh, I would say the basis, the uh, first uh, line of defense really is uh, uh, the ability of the various agencies who have some piece of this uh, to not only share information but share expertise, uh, share targets, and use the full uh, resources that we have to address this problem. Thank you, Director Mueller. I yield back. Mr. Maloney. Mr. Miller, thank you. I know it's been a long day, and I want to make clear um, how much respect I have for your service and for your extraordinary career. And I want you to understand my questions in that context, sir. I'm going to be asking you um, about Appendix C um, uh, to, to your report, and uh, in particular, um, the decision not to do a sworn interview with the president. It's really the only subject I want to talk to you about, sir. Why didn't you subpoena the president? Uh, well, at the outset, after we took over and initiated the investigation. If, if I could ask you to speak on the microphone. Yeah, of course. Uh, at the outset, after we uh, took over the uh, investigation and began it and pursued it, quite obviously one of the things we anticipated wanting to accomplish, and that is getting, having the inter interview of the president. We negotiated from, uh, with him for a little over a year, and I think what you adverted to in the appendix lays out uh, our ex expectations as a result of those negotiations. But finally, uh, when it became, we were almost towards the end of our investigation and we'd had little success in pushing to get the interview of the president, uh, we decided that uh, we did not want to uh, exercise the subpoena powers uh, because of the necessity of uh, expediting the end of the uh, investigation. Was that, was that, excuse me, did you want to? I was going to say, uh, the expectation was, if we did subpoena the president, he would fight the subpoena, and we would be in the midst of the investigation for, for a substantial period of time. Right, but, but as we sit here, you've never had an opportunity to, to ask the president in-person questions under oath, and so obviously that must have been a difficult decision. And you're right, Appendix C lays that out, and indeed, I, I believe you described the uh, the in-person interview as vital, that's your word, um, and of course you make clear you had the authority and the legal justification to do it. As you point out, you waited a year, you put up with a lot of negotiations, you made numerous accommodations which you lay out so that he could prepare and not be surprised. I take it you were trying to be fair to the president. Um, and by the way, you were going to limit uh, the questions when you got to written questions to Russia uh, only. And in fact, you did go with written questions after about nine months, sir, right? And, and, it, at, and the president responded to those, and you have some hard language for 
what you thought of those responses. What did you think of the president's written responses, Mr. Mueller? Uh, certainly not as useful as uh, the interview would be. In fact, in fact, you, you pointed out, and, and by my count, there were more than 30 times when the president said he didn't recall, he didn't remember, no independent recollection, no current recollection. And I take it by your answer that it wasn't as helpful. Um, that's why you used words like incomplete, imprecise, inadequate, insufficient. Is that a fair summary of what you thought of those written answers? That is a fair summary. And I, I presume that comes from the report. And yet, sir, and I ask this respectfully, uh, by the way, the president didn't ever claim the Fifth Amendment, did he? I'm not going to talk to that. Well, I, from what I can tell, sir, at one point it was vital, and then at one, another point it wasn't vital. And my question to you is, why did it stop being vital? And I can only think of three explanations. One is that somebody told you you couldn't do it, but nobody told you you couldn't subpoena the president. Is that right? No, we understood we could subpoena the president. Rosenstein didn't tell you. Whitaker didn't tell you. Barr didn't tell you you couldn't. We, we could serve a subpoena. So the only other explanation, well, there's two others, I guess. One, that you just flinched. That you, you had the opportunity to do it and you didn't do it. But, but, sir, you don't strike me as the kind of guy who flinches. I hope not. Well, then the third explanation, I hope not too, sir. And the third explanation I can think of is that, is that you didn't think you needed it. And, in fact, what caught my eye was page 13 on volume 2, where you said, in fact, you had a substantial body of evidence. And you cite a bunch of cases there, don't you, about how you often have to prove intent to obstruct justice without an in-person interview. That's the kind of nature of it. And you, and, you, and you use terms like a substantial body of evidence, significant evidence of the president's intent. So my question, sir, is did you have sufficient evidence of the president's intent to obstruct justice, and is that why you didn't do the interview? Uh, there's a balance. In other words, how much evidence you have to satisfy uh, the last element uh, against how much time are you willing to spend in the courts uh, uh, litigating uh, a, uh, uh, the uh, interview with the president. And in this case, you felt that you had enough evidence of the president's intent. We had to make a balanced decision in terms of uh, uh, how much evidence we had compared to the length of time it would take. And to sir, do because that. I have limited time, you thought that if you gave it to the attorney general or to this Congress, that there was sufficient evidence that it was better than that delay. Uh, can you state that again? Well, that it was better than the delay to present the sufficient evidence, your term, of the president's intent to obstruct justice to the attorney general and to this committee. Isn't that why you didn't do the interview? Uh, the reason we didn't do the interview is because of the length of time that it would take to uh, uh, resolve the issues attendant to that. Thank you, sir. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wanted still burns as bright tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy liberty opportunity and unyielding hope let me tell you something you already know the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow it's a very mean and nasty place and i don't care how tough you are it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for letting you can you believe that we're getting away with this? Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you 
Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. He wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making.